The following audio is from Redeemer Anglican Church in Richmond, Virginia. More information about Redeemer is available online at RedeemerRVA.org. Psalm 58. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No. In your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. The word of the Lord. Friends, please stand for the reading of the gospel. The gospel reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 23, verses 29 to 39. That's on page 829 of your Black Pew Bibles. And just as a reminder, if you don't own a Bible of your own, you are welcome to take one of these home with you as a gift from us. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them and shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of, the, of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. You can be seated. Good morning. Uh, my name is T, and I'm grateful to serve as the college minister here uh, at U of R through the Coalition of Cro- Christian Outreach. 
Uh, I'm also a postulant in our diocese, uh, which means I'm preparing to be ordained someday. Uh, don't ask me if it's soon, because it's, it's not. It's going to be a while. <laughs> in the summers, uh, I get to take some seminary classes, and as many students leave town, I also have the opportunity to preach, so I'm grateful to Dan for this opportunity. What I've loved about coming to the songs each summer, which we've been doing for the past few summers, is experiencing the power these words have to dignify and change our hearts and emotions. The Psalms dignify our hearts and emotions. As my wife tells me, uh, I'm a dramatic person. So naturally, I find the Psalms to be particularly important in my life with God because they either give voice to what I already feel or move me towards what is appropriate to feel. And some of you may find yourself drawn to the Psalms for similar reasons, but I imagine for all of us, and myself included, it can be difficult to read the Psalms because they may not fit into our normal categories for Scripture reading. We look for moral application, or we look for concise theology, or compelling narrative, but the Psalms do not really offer us ethics, theology, or stories. They offer us heartfelt prayers that voice the catalog of human emotion, whether we are familiar with those emotions or not. So with this in mind, uh, let us begin and discover how the Lord may want to change our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we pray that as we look at this text and we consider how you may change our hearts, we pray, Lord, that you would give us humility as we do so. Lord, we confess that we are weak and frail and in desperate need of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before we begin, I just want to offer a disclaimer. If you were listening, this psalm is really hard. It's not easy. In fact, I asked a handful of you this past week, how would you pray Psalm 58? Or why would you pray Psalm 58? In response, many of you offered some thoughtful answers, and some of you also said, that's, that's a tough assignment, T. Good luck. Or some of you said simply, I wouldn't. Uh, the phrases in this passage are challenging, but more so, the emotions of this passage are challenging. Which is probably why some of you said you wouldn't pray this psalm. This is a psalm expressing anger. And while some of us can easily identify anger, I know I struggle to identify with what it feels like to be angry, let alone angry to the point of praying these words of Psalm 58. My hope, this is my hope, is that we could all leave this morning prepared to do so, and that those of you who said, I wouldn't, would leave here saying, I will. That's the goal. Now, the Psalms uh, are composed of many different types, and the ones expressing deep anger are often called the imprecatory Psalms, like Psalm 58. If you're not familiar with an imprecatory Psalm, it means to curse. Uh, These are cursing Psalms. The imprecatory Psalms are the angry voice of God's people, asking God to curse their oppressors. Uh, Just a good clarification here. It's not God's people cursing others themselves. It's pleading for God to curse others. These psalms are are quite intense and their tone is challenging. They are the kinds of psalms we we would just skip on any other Sunday. (laughs) So we need to ask, if we tend to skip these psalms, why or how could we read, engage, and actually pray these psalms instead? C.S. Lewis takes up this question. He says, One way of dealing with these terrible, or dare I say, contemptible psalms is simply to leave them alone. But unfortunately, 
The bad parts will not come away clean. They may, as we have noticed, be intertwined with the most exquisite things. And if we still believe that all Holy Scripture is written for our learning and that the age-old use of the Psalms in Christian worship was not entirely contrary to the will of God, if we remember that our Lord's mind and language were clearly steeped in the Psalter, we shall prefer, if possible, to make some use of them. What use can be made, he asks. He goes on, We must not either try to explain them away or to yield for one moment to the idea because it comes in the Bible, all this vindictive hatred must somehow be good and pious. We must face both facts squarely. The hatred is there, festering, gloating, undisguised, and also we should be wicked if we in any way condoned or approved it, or worse, used it to justify similar passions in ourselves. Only after these two admissions have been made, can we safely proceed? So to summarize what he's saying, as we read Psalm 58, if we are faithful followers of Christ who believe all scripture is breathed out by God, we must make use of it. How? Let's not think hatred is inherently a good thing. And let's not use this psalm to justify hatred in ourselves. So with these words from Lewis, let us venture into Psalm 58 and see how we can, in his words, make some use of it. Uh, The question that Psalm 58 prompts us to ask is this. What do we do with our anger in the face of injustice? What do we do with our anger in the face of injustice? And so for the remainder of our time, we're going to simply seek to answer this question in three ways. First, we're going to look at what the psalmist does. We'll look at what we do. Third, we'll look at what Christ does and will do. And then at the end, we're going to finish with the goal that I set out for this morning, that we could all leave prepared to, at the very least, pray this psalm, and that those of you who said, I wouldn't, would leave here saying, I will. So first, what the psalmist does. A little bit of background here. The psalmist is likely David, which is like many of the psalms, who had a a warrant out for his arrest by Saul. And if you're familiar with the story of Saul and David in Samuel, you know at this point David was innocent. Saul had been the one disobeying God and now sought to abuse his power and eliminate David, who he saw as a threat, which leaves David on the run, writing this psalm to pray through his anger, facing Saul's evil. And this is important because in this past week, in asking several of you why you would pray this psalm, a major consensus I heard was this, I would pray this when I'm angry at injustice, particularly at the hands of leaders abusing their power. And to this I said, I agree, amen. And gosh, friends, what a timely psalm to unpack this morning. As I heard from many of you, I couldn't help but hear the cries for justice coming from the people of God for a variety of reasons. For political leaders to lay down their thirst for power and protect our schools and children. For church leaders to repent of their severe misuse of power and admit their longstanding neglect of sexual abuse. For bosses to be confronted for their mismanagement and creating corrupt work culture and hiring practices. These are just some of the cries that I heard from you regarding the injustice of leaders in this world. And David is right there with you in Psalm 58. So let's take a look at what he has to say. He begins by asking a rhetorical question. He, he asks, do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No. In your hearts, you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence. I think this is our gut response to injustice, isn't it? When we are confronted with wicked leadership, we almost have to question reality itself. Will this person really get away with this? 
before we can even assess what our response, let alone God's response should be in the face of injustice, our anger, our anger just boils over into a question. We wonder how this scale of evil could even exist. We ask, is this even allowed? David's answer and our answer ought to be a categorical and immediate response, no. No, it is not. It is evil and it is wrong. But why? Why is corrupt leadership inherently unjust? Why is it wrong? David says they are wicked because in verse 3 they speak lies. In verse 4 they kill with venom and do not listen. They are deaf. They are wrong because they speak lies, kill, and do not listen. These are the hallmarks of poor and wicked leadership. Now, in speaking with some of you this week, I think we all kind of struggled to identify with the kind of unjust leadership that actually kills us or those we love. But I don't want to just set that aside altogether. Because if we think back through history, we must acknowledge the ruthless decisions of slave traders to uproot men, women, and children from Africa to meet their own economic desires, or the ignorant behavior of pharmaceutical execs to let addictive opioids rampantly overdose portions of America. There are systemic evils fueled by lies and silence that give way to death for the marginalized and oppressed. We cannot set this aside. But if we consider the leaders who may not kill but lie and do not listen, I think we are much quicker to resonate with examples like these. Perhaps you've had a parent who has repeatedly lied to you, a teacher who has intentionally neglected you in the classroom, or a boss who has never listened to your ideas or suggestions, or has lied to you about your role in the company or the raise that you were promised. On a recent flight, I uh, rewatched a movie called The Social Network, which depicts the start of Facebook. In the movie, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook, is uh, portrayed as this terrible startup boss. The movie goes back and forth between the past and the present with Zuckerberg at a table with his lawyers trying to defend him because his peers at Harvard, who he went to school with, who had contributed to the idea of Facebook, had been cut out. And as it took off, were left behind by Zuckerberg so he could do things his way but at the, cost of his leader, at the cost of friendship. I think this modern story is oddly similar to the text because David writing this psalm had been close with Saul too. Yet we fast forward in their relationship and we see Saul felt threatened by David and sought to kill and destroy him and cut him out from Israel altogether. Now, if we move to verse six, this is where we begin to become less sympathetic to David. I mean, this language is nasty disturbing. This is the cursing portion of the psalm as David asks God, let them vanish, break their teeth, be torn out, dissolved like a snail, never let them see the sun and be swept away. Here's where the hatred that Lewis points out is on full display. As we read these words, I want us to understand how the psalms fit in as a literary genre. In the canon of scripture, they are the hymn book, but they are also poetry. And if you've read poetry before, it often includes exaggerated language to get the main point across. This is called hyperbole, which is used to create emphasis, but should not be taken literally. Honestly, I'm not even sure that a snail actually dissolves into slime. I don't know, but that's besides the point. The point is that when we are viscerally angry, we tend to exaggerate. We feel like we want to see something terrible happen to our boss, parent, or teacher. It's why if you're a teenage son or daughter, you may storm after arguing with your parents, saying, I'm never going to talk to you again. But the core of what David is saying when he prays this is this. Let the unjust leader reap 
what they have sown. And when this happened, if God, if when this happens, if God comes through and does curse the unjust leader, the righteous will rejoice and all mankind will say, there is a God who judges the earth. Finally, here at the end of the psalm, David acknowledges the lingering question we may have, is God just? Which for us is a critical question of our faith and often our conversations with our neighbors and in a world ridden with injustice. Is God just? Is God just? And David implores God, he implores God to be who he said he'd be throughout the Torah, the one who will judge the evil on earth. So this is what David does with his anger in the face of injustice. He prays, challenging the unjust leader, naming their heinous actions, cursing them hyperbolically, and ultimately celebrating God's character to be just. If you're like me, I read this psalm, and I'm not only challenged by the language that David uses, but I'm also challenged by my need to pray this psalm at all. I ask myself, in what scenario might I actually have to pray these words? Thus far, we've named some examples of why we pray Psalm 58. And maybe you're beginning to think about some in your own mind as well. But instead of just listing out all the reasons why we should pray these words like David, we must further address our response to these words, our second point, what we do instead. Now, I imagine most of us find ourselves with one of two responses we're going to call abnormal and normal. We'll start with the abnormal. Some of you will think these words are just not quite enough. For someone who has experienced firsthand the grievous actions of a leader who thought you, who you thought you could trust, who just turtle, totally turned their back on you, I would not be surprised for you to say these words are not enough. However, I think there's some of you here who might say these words are enough, but perhaps type or speak as if the words of Psalm 58 were not sufficient to express anger in the face of injustice. As opposed to the time-tested words of Psalm 58, social media has become the easier route to express our anger and curse others by tweeting at people, posting essays on Facebook, or reposting stories on Instagram. And frankly, when we seethe with anger over the atrocities in our world, it's way easier to quickly express our hatred in this way. But this hasty response, friends, is not righteous. It denies the words of James who calls us to be slow to speak and what? Quick to listen. An unrighteous response to evil is falling to the level of the oppressor and responding to their sin with similar sins of our own. Why do we do this? Because it's easier to hate than it is to love. Even if it's not on social media, it's easier to gossip with our anger in our hearts about our boss than it is to publicly love them in response. It's easier to yell at our parents and walk away than it is to engage in conversation. It's easier to hate than it is to love. But though it's easier, it's cowardly. In our anger, we are tempted to think that Psalm 58 is not enough, that God's word is not sufficient, that to fully express our anger, we have to gossip, yell, and tweet. But in doing so, we actually deny the sufficiency of God's word. This is one response to Psalm 58. More abnormal, but maybe more normal than you think. But I think the more normal response we have is these words go too far, right? If you're like me, when you read this passage, you hesitate to pray these words because they just sound too harsh. Like we mentioned earlier, there is context to David's exaggerated words. They are poetic, but still, how could I possibly pray for someone's teeth to be knocked out? 
I cringe even imagining that. I also hesitate to pray these words because to interact with injustice is hard work. If I pray about it, it may mean that I have to do something about it, and I don't want to. If I begin praying Psalm 58 in response to Putin's role in the Ukrainian war, I just might have to care for Ukrainian refugees, and I don't want to. I admit, I often don't want to do the hard work of seeking justice. I don't. Do you? So what do we do instead? What may you do instead? We stand on the sidelines and denounce these leaders and these, injustice, these injustices from afar. Lewis says this, We live in a milder age. These poets lived in a world of savage, savage punishments, of massacre and violence, of blood sacrifice in all countries, and human sacrifice in many. And of course, too, we are far more subtle than they in disguising our ill will from others and from ourselves. Well, we'll say, he'll live to be sorry for it. He'll live to be sorry for it. I mean, what an unheroic, embarrassed response to injustice. If we look beyond the initial shock of these words, the hard work of fighting injustice and the milder language we use to disguise our anger from afar, we might ask, could there be any other way to respond to this passage this morning? I wonder if underlying our response to hesitate praying these words is not the thought that we are too civilized to pray this kind of thing or to do anything, but because deep down, we are terrified of the fact that these words might be prayed in response to us, to our leadership, to our unjust actions, to the lies we tell, to our poor listening and ignorance. As I reread this passage, Again and again this week, I slowly but surely moved from thinking only David could pray this in his time, or that this is only for the atrocities like the slave trade or the opioid crisis or the Ukrainian war, or that this is about my old boss or parent, to thinking, gosh, could this be about me? Could someone pray Psalm 58 in response to my unjust leadership in the future, in the past, or the, even right now in the present? In the past few years, as I have watched church and ministry leaders abuse their power, I have been terrified. Could this be me someday, I ask? In a position of leadership like ministry, you are trusted to care for the hearts, minds, and bodies of your flock. And too often, men and women have neglected and ignored their duty to do so for the sake of their own desires. And friends, I just want to admit that that scares the heck out of me in your leadership as a parent, boss, manager, teacher, volunteer leader, oldest sibling, whatever it may be, underneath these words, are you terrified, like me, that you could do something for someone else to pray these words about you? Friends, I don't pose pose these questions to just scare you, but to help us be humble readers of this text, to ask, could this be about me? Could this psalm reveal my sin? Thus far, we have walked through the psalm to see how David prays his anger in the face of injustice. We have considered what we do with our anger and what the normal and abnormal responses we have to the words of Psalm 58 might be. And we have bravely asked if this psalm could be about us. Now, to move towards closing, I want us to consider the question, what do we do with our anger in the face of injustice after we look at what Christ has done and will do? First, Christ dignifies our anger. We must not narrow our understanding of the eternal Son of God. God condescended, characterizing 
Jesus, even in the Old Testament, in Exodus 32, he reveals himself to Moses and expresses his anger at the Israelites for their idolatry, for their, for their actions of creating the golden calf and worshiping it, which is not unsimilar to the way Jesus enters the temple in Jerusalem in Matthew 21 to turn over the tables and cast out the moneylenders for their idolatrous acts of misusing the temple. And in our gospel reading today, we read a portion of the woes Jesus speaks in response to the Pharisees. As we read, Jesus did not hesitate to use harsh words of truth, and he wasn't always being hyperbolic. He was honest. Friends, Jesus shows us throughout Scripture that our righteous anger can be good. He dignifies it. Second, in his death, Jesus forgives and humbles all of us. What the life of Jesus reveals to us is that he went beyond just praying his anger or vocalizing his anger, but he also went to work with his anger in a way that we do not want to do. He fought for justice, spending time with the oppressed, the outcast, the marginalized, and even the corrupt tax collectors and the murderous governors. What the life of Jesus and ultimately the crucifixion of our Lord teaches us is that we are not in the place to execute judgment. Because as we asked ourselves, we could be the evil, wicked, and corrupt ones who have enacted injustice and are deserving of someone praying Psalm 58 for God to curse us. But friends, God in his rich love and mercy died for each and every one of us. The corrupt boss, the ignorant teacher, the disappointing parent, and executed his justice for evil, not in our way, but his way, taking upon himself the righteous judgment that we all deserve. His death realigns how we praise Psalm 58 because as we rejoice in God's justice, we must recognize, recognize that it's for the defeat of Christ in which we rejoice because it means we can freely forgive those who have committed injustice. Even in our anger, Christ in his death gives us the freedom to extend mercy. And third, his work was not finished because he was raised so that though we rejoice in his death, we even more rejoice in his defeat of death, offering everyone who accepts his mercy eternal life. Yet he mysteriously told his disciples that he would also come again. And friends, this is crucial to our understanding of the Christian life. We not only live in light of Christ's death and resurrection, but we live in anticipation of his return. And when he does, he will enact a final and complete judgment upon the earth. The way we've lived and the leadership that we have wielded will all be uncovered. He will come to judge those who have entrenched themselves in their evil ways. He will break their teeth and sweep them away. And friends, ultimately, the age to come will not be a milder age. It will be a far more beautiful age, a perfected age, because Christ will eliminate in his just and merciful ways all injustice and evil from our world as heaven and earth unite. Which means we not only pray Psalm 58, rejoicing in the death and resurrection of Christ, which offers forgiveness and eternal life for all people, but we can pray Psalm 58 in hopes that God's just character will come to fruition and all mankind will rejoice and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, before we close with some brief application, I want to read the words of James 5, 7 through 11 as an encouragement in the midst of our waiting, rejoicing, and praying. He says this, 
Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, what will we do in response to the words of Psalm 58? Of course, pray the psalm this week. I think this goes without saying. But what about before we leave this place? And what about after we leave? First, before we leave. We have an opportunity each and every week to cry out to God during the prayers of the people. Some of you who are new to Redeemer may be unfamiliar with this time of, of prayer. What you should know is that even w- that when we say pray aloud, we actually mean it. This psalm was a collective lament for the Jewish people. So in that vein, if there's evil in this world that makes us as a church angry together, let's cry out aloud and implore God to enact his judgment in response. And after that, we will enter a time of confession and then we'll come to the table. Friends, instead of spilling our blood or our enemy's blood, Jesus Christ spilt his blood on the cross in which we find our forgiveness and life. As we take bread and dip it in the cup and receive our Lord by faith with thanksgiving, may we remember our enemies whom Christ also has forgiven. And second, after you leave, what would it look like for us to pursue justice in our city and the world as we wait for Christ to return? What is one thing that you can do this week to bring justice amidst the evil systems of this world? And how might you call corrupt leaders to repentance? How might the world know that it is followers of Jesus who take the charge in ending the lies and ignorance of corrupt leaders? Friends, let us close by considering this question from the prophet Micah. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. Amen.